For the sermon today, you have your usual raft of handouts and guides. They help me stay on track, and I hope they help you know where I'm going. And uh, each week it has uh, become my custom, as I've sort of learned to preach week by week here at Christ the King, to offer a translation of the passage. And that is headed by some little quips that I found inspiring as I was preparing this week. So you should have a translation with notes on the back, an outline that is titled The Unbeatable Jesus, continued, more to be said in a minute, and then some abbreviated sermon notes. Um, there are more of these to come, and you'll find them in your email tomorrow if you're on our list, but these are the, the crucial ones for today. Let me start with the top. It's a real pick-me-up. It was St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the 4th century, who said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. Well, let's orient ourselves a little bit to where we have been. Um, <clears throat> last week, we dove back into the Gospel of Matthew. And we began what was really a little mini-series in the Gospel of Matthew, courtesy of chapter 22. And the mini-series consisted of three attempts on the part of Jesus' opponents to knock him out. We were told in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, that Jesus' opponents, uh, the Pharisees and others, tried to entrap him by his words. And as I was studying this week, I realized that, uh, I noticed this originally, it was really by his word. And the word word in chapter 22, 15 might not mean by conversation or by dialogue, but it might mean in respect to the word, which in Deuteronomy refers to um, God's covenant rules. So either they were trying to trip him up in his conversation, getting him to say something that was implicating, or perhaps more specifically, or even a little bit differently, they were trying to get him to um, commit some kind of an error uh, in terms of their understanding of the way in which the Old Testament worked. And they failed miserably. Unlike the Leafs last night, who, uh, I don't know whether you saw last night in the overtime, uh, many of us were expecting more doom and gloom. It's time to bomb out in the finals. But um, in the last overtime period, um, who was it? Travis, was it, was it who did the backhanded goal? Tverek, okay, Tverek, great, thanks. So Tverek and the Leafs won, and Jesus' opponents lost. So last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first two strikes, and they're summarized on the introduction of the outline. Strike one, the Pharisees and Herodians against Jesus, the unbeatably skilled tactician. Jesus answered a tricky question about offering taxes to Caesar. It seemed like they would uh, be able to trap him regardless of which way he went, whether he said yes or whether he said no. But he skillfully negotiated right through the middle and left them walking with their tails between their legs. Then came strike two, the Sadducees against Jesus, the unbeatably skilled teacher, Matthew 22, 23 to 33. And here they asked a question about the resurrection, which was loaded from the start. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. And they knew Jesus did. They knew the Pharisees did. 
and they wanted to show Jesus how ridiculous it was to believe in the resurrection. And Jesus, again, by playing their own game, by using the Torah as his basis, their scriptures, he showed them how God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and that there is life after the grave. One thing I didn't mention last week, and I wanted to leave it for this week, is that at the end of strike two, it was actually Jesus who showed himself to be an unbeatably skilled teacher of the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first of three parts of the Hebrew Bible. And that leads me to a question that's going to be important for our sermon this week. It's not kind of a throwaway trivia couple of lines, but if the Torah is the first part of the Hebrew Bible, and if you have a pen, which you do because you're going to fill out that information card, I hope and pray this week, um, there are three parts to the Hebrew Bible. There is the Torah, which is the law, the first five books. And then there is the blank, which in Hebrew is called Nevi'im. And then there is the blank, which is called the Ketuvim. Anybody here been to theology school recently enough to know what those are? Maybe you've done Hebrew. Ben, you want to take a shot? You're very close. Yes, yes, right. I, yeah, 90, 90%. A minus, A, A, close to A. They, the second of the prophets, uh, which are the, what are the word nevi'im in Hebrew. Yes, and then the wisdom literature, it, it, it's more broadly categorized than the wisdom literature, but it's called the writings. So if you're filling in the blanks, which might keep you uh, awake on a rainy Sunday afternoon, it's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Because Jesus is soon in our passage going to refer to the law and the prophets. And the writings are going to become important in the second part of our, of our session. So we're not just doing um, sort of meaningless CFRB Sunday morning trivia. We're doing a little bit of trivia that has some significance. And it's interesting to note that the Jewish people call the Bible the Tanakh. And that is an acronym that comes from the first letter of the word Torah, the first letter of the word Nevi'im, and the first letter of the word Ketuvim. And they just put vowels in between, and it comes out being Tanakh. That is what the Jews call the Old Testament, which is exactly the same as ours, except that the order of books is different than in ours in some cases. All right, well, we, before we come to look at strike three, an expert Bible teacher against Jesus, the unbeatably skilled Bible interpreter, verses 34 to 40 of your passage, which Y read uh, nicely and well for us, I just thought that it might be helpful at the beginning of uh, the sermon to come clean about what my uh, bottom three lines are. And I hope I don't give away so much of it that you end up not listening for the balance. But clarity is an important thing. And there are some things here that I haven't said as often as I might have, even though we're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Matthew. Number one is not just about Matthew and not just about Jesus, it's about us. And it's hard for us as Gentiles to get a sense of the importance of it. Matthew, the author of the first gospel, sees himself as a scribe. A scribe. Now, in Matthew's gospel, there are two kinds of scribes. Bad, bad guy scribes and good guy scribes. And Matthew is also obviously a good guy scribe. And so is Jesus, according to Matthew, many people think. And so Matthew sees himself as a scribe, and I've defined scribe very loosely, and this applies to us as a disciple-making Bible interpreter and teacher. 
who was mentored by the master rabbi Jesus himself. That's why Matthew wrote his gospel. He learned from Jesus. He learned from Jesus how to interpret the Bible, and he records the teachings of Jesus in order for us to understand the Bible. And Matthew wants us to do the same. Compare the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, where we are to go into all of the world, uh, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the commands that Jesus gave. I want to put in a little bit of a plug here under item number one as kind of a justification for, for what we do and, what, so for, and what, the, what the previous rector of Christ the King uh, did. We spend a lot of time at Christ the King trying to expound the scriptures. And we do it systematically week by week as we go through a book. And that's not to say that other people don't do it effectively. It's simply our preference. But if there are ever times when you sort of wish you were saying to yourself, Keith, two years ago, or Glenn in the present, just lay a little light on the Bible stuff and just give us the goodies that come out the vending machine. You know, tell us how to live life a little better this week. That's not what Matthew wants. That's not what Jesus wants. These were Jews. We're not. And Jews are people who are committed to a book and who are committed to absorbing themselves in the wonderful world of this book and letting it influence them. As John Stott once put it, a person, a Christian with his Bible ought to be like a dog with a bone. You know, you get both hands over it and you, you chew on it and you mull over it and you drool on it and you just spend hours mulling on it because it's nourishing and it's what dogs do. I want to suggest that what Matthew wants us to do as Christians is to mull over the text, to ponder it, not because we're nerds or eggheads, but because the word is life-giving and it points us to Jesus. It's inspired by the scriptures. It's inspired by the spirit, rather. So that's the first point. Keep in the back of your mind that Matthew has an agenda. The Holy Spirit through Matthew has an agenda that we are to be like scribes, the good guy scribes who were Jews, who are all into learning about the Bible and who are all into interpreting the Bible. The second point is that Matthew 22, 34 to 46, our passage for today, summarizes Jesus's main emphases, plural, as a Bible interpreter. So in answer to the question that the lawyer posed Jesus in verses 34 to 40, Jesus responded after he was asked, what is the greatest in the law? He said to them in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus here identifies the heartbeat of the Torah and the prophets. You'll notice that he says in verse 40, and here comes the code language, the trivia quiz that we just had a minute ago, on these two commandments, the entire Pentateuch, which is another word for law, which is another word for Torah, and the prophets depend or hang. Jesus is telling us what is bottom line in terms of the, the content of the Torah and the prophets. 
And it's not to say that you can boil these texts down to these. I have a, a friend, an Anglican friend, who I like to differ with, who sometimes says to me, Glenn, we Christians, we simply are bound to the Ten Commandments. We're not bound to all of those laws in the Old Testament. We're bound to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves. And it's almost as though they replace the Old Testament. No, this is the life force that runs through all of the Old Testament. And none of it is to be set aside as Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5. It's like the current that goes through the cord of your toaster or your microwave or your refrigerator or whatever it is. It's the life force, the basis, um, the heartbeat of it all. And it comes in these two statements. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. The first is the most important. The second comes hand in hand. And the two are kind of like the flip side of a coin. And then the third point is that the Messiah King is the son of David and a student and upholder of the word and see Lord. Well, where did that come from? It came from the second part of our passage. Because you see, after Jesus has struck out the Pharisees, or after they have struck themselves out, as it were, Jesus then steps up the plate, up to the plate, and says, Well, now it's my time to try and see if I can strike a hit. And he asks them a question from the third part of the Old Testament, the writings. Jesus has summarized the Torah, he summarized the prophetic words, but now he asks them a question from the book of Psalms, which in many versions was the first book of the third section of the Old Testament, the writings. So now Jesus moves to the third quadrant, and his point is, we'll look at the, the passage in a little bit more detail in a minute, to say that if you want to understand what the writings are about, the writings are about the Messiah, who is not just David's son, not just his kid, but his God. And the Pharisees don't like it, but Jesus, the master Bible teacher and interpreter, leaves them without an ability to answer. I don't know how to explain Psalm 110, given what you've just said. So Jesus is really here summarizing all of these things. And then the third thing, which really makes it uh, kind of comforting to know why we've been spending the past few years in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus' life and teaching reflect perfectly the ideal of one who fulfills the double commandment. So the one who um, summarizes the writings teaches us how to embody and live out the first five books, the Pentateuch, and the prophets in who he is, what he teaches, what he does. We'll look at a list in a minute. So those are the theological underpinnings. And I want to just kind of root it in theology because, before we go back to baseball. All right, point number two, back to baseball, strike three. An expert Bible teacher against Jesus, the unbeatably skilled Bible interpreter. Well, it's as though in uh, verse 34, the Pharisees, after, after learning that they struck out and the Herodians struck out and the Sadducees struck out, they now want um, an expert um, to, um, to come up to bat. And so they appoint a lawyer. Now, this would be like the head of a denomination or a senior pastor, um, a, a super well-trained Bible teacher. And he comes and he asks him a question to test him. What he's got in mind, we don't quite know, because it's not obvious how he's trapping him. Maybe he's just testing his understanding of um, mosaic legislation, like I mentioned in that word, word, to begin with. 
But anyway, Jesus gets it right. And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. So I began by uh, giving us a theological underpinning that had to do with scribes. And now I want to return you, now I want to refer you to the sermon notes. And here I have to uh, acknowledge that although in general I'm not on thin ice, I trust and pray, but I am a little bit on thin ice by being more specific, maybe than um, re I'm, I'm reading between the lines and following the, the, um, the, the theory of a scholar named Gerhardson. But he's been picked up by many commentators, and it's a helpful handle in order to, um, to understand what's going on. What in the world I'm talking about, you'll soon find out. Jesus, in his, uh, in Jesus outlines three ways in which we can love God, with our heart, with our soul, and our mind. And now you're going to want to maybe get your pen out, because we're looking at the scribal understanding of what it means to love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and your mind. And we're on the flip side of the handout already. There was a strong rabbinic tradition that was current among the scribes in Jesus' day that Jesus doesn't seem to have taken any offense with here. He and the lawyer are on the same basis. They both kind of give a thumbs up. The lawyer tests him. Jesus responds. The lawyer gives a thumbs up. And one of the other gospels, actually, Jesus turns to the lawyer who in that episode somehow brought up the subject himself. And Jesus says to that man, you are not far from the kingdom. So here's what the scribes thought with, whole, with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with your whole mind meant. And I'm on page one of the sermon notes handout. The good guy scribes, at least the, the scribes were right, and probably Matthew and maybe Jesus is also being uh, in, in the same train with this. When the scripture says with your whole heart, it, miss, it emphasizes that you must love God with both, the in, with both inclinations of your heart. So the word with your whole heart thinks of two things. There are two parts of you. There's one that kind of wants to serve God most of the time, maybe, but then there's this other part of you that really doesn't want to very much. You'd rather, you know, get greedy and lustful and everything else. And so loving your God with your whole heart is underlined under category number one on page one. So we are to love God with both our godly inclinations and with our sensual inclinations by resisting the latter uh, wherever uh, we are mandated so to do. And so it's all about um, controlling your uh, desires. Then uh, under soul, so if you wanted to, you could just kind of fill in a definition under heart. Um, it means um, be in control of both godly and sinful inclinations. Loving God with your soul, according to scribal tradition, meant with a commitment to give up your soul or to give up your life if you were required to. Soul is the word for life. And so the rabbis, or the, the rabbis and the scribes understood this to mean your whole being. You have to be ready to become a martyr in order to do that. Loving God with your whole soul means a commitment to give up your life. Martyrdom at the most and lesser things such as persecution. And I want you to hold this in your mind because in a minute we're just going to kind of plug this into some passages in the, in the um in the Gospel of Matthew to see how it fits together and how what we've been learning over the past months kind of ties in with this. 
Then we come to the one about your mind or your, your might. And there are two understandings of this. I put one in the footnote, but the one we're going to follow is the one that is prescribed on page one. And that is, is that loving God with your whole mind can actually also mean mammon. It's all of your resources apart from your life and body. So loving your God with your whole mind means not getting sidetracked by the love of money and by possessions and wealth. Now, that being the case, um, here Hartson points out how in the temptation story of Jesus, Jesus passes the test of loving God with his whole heart. The first temptation, Jesus is tempted with food. He was supposed to be fasting. Satan offered him food, and he said, no, I'm going to deny that sensual inclination because it's not God's will. When he was taken on top of the Temple Mount, he was kind of offered to uh, sort of put his life on the line and to throw himself off of the, 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 uh, the Temple Mount and to trust God to uh, save him. And Jesus, in effect, was saying, it's not my time to come down from the temple. My time not to come down from the temple will be when I'm on the cross later on. And uh, months ago, when we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 4, we saw that Matthew, uh, in the temptation story, it was really like boot camp for the cross, uh, because the, the opponents of Jesus said the same thing that Satan did. If you're the Son of God, why don't you come down from there? And that way we'll believe in you. So Jesus resists that temptation, and he loves God with his whole soul. And then with your whole might, if it does have to do with resources and the love of money, you remember in the third temptation that Jesus was tempted by Satan when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said, no, thank you. Don't need the possessions. Don't need the wealth. I'm content with what God has given me. Now, you could go through the same, and I'll leave it to you to do that if you wish with um, the story of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. And um, it seems clear that in the story of the sower, you have, again, the same kind of temptations. What led the, so what led the seed not to grow in one case was an illustration of the uh, not loving your God with your whole heart. In the second case, it was a demonstration of not loving God with your whole soul. And in the third case, it was a case of not loving God with your whole might. And so uh, the point seems to be, and I think is, that in a way, Jesus walks the talk and he teaches the talk. Here is what he's saying. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And lo and behold, you read the gospel and Jesus' teachings teach the love of God. The Sermon on the Mount does. And then his healings teach the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself. A woman with a hemorrhage. Touch her, I'll get defiled. She's my neighbor. I should love her as myself. I will heal her. A leper. And so the healing stories embody what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Carry it on in the Gospels as we did on Monday, Thursday. It includes washing another's feet. So that's how Jesus struck out in the third case and how he in his life illustrates the importance of the first and the second commandment. Now, when Jesus finally gets his say, he says in verse 41, still being assembled as the Pharisees were, Jesus asked them, this sounds familiar, remember? They learned this from Jesus in the first place. The Pharisees and the Herodians in the first test, they said this to him. Um, uh, 
what do you think about giving taxes to Caesar? And this is Jesus' style. He says, well, tell me now, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, of course, the religious leaders sort of think, well, I'm not in kindergarten. Uh, their response is, well, David's. Everybody knows that. And then Jesus, in verse 30, 43, he invokes Psalm 110. And he says, well, how therefore does David, in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, and here the logic is getting a little hard to follow, but it's actually not that hard once you get, I'll just offer a little um, explanation of it in a minute. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If therefore David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, if you turn to Psalm 110, and I think I have it included in your sermon um, material, it's on page, bottom of page two. And here you see not only the logic of Jesus, but you see Jesus' incredible respect for Scripture. Psalm 110 has a title to it, and it says, A Psalm by David. That's a title. And uh, many people think that the, that the title is, is maybe not inspired. Um, it's, they're, they're, they're a little unsure of this, but Jesus does not lack certainty here. So here's how it goes. Jesus and the title attribute the psalm to David as the author. So that means that David is speaking in verse 1. And when he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, well, everyone acknowledges that the person who's sitting at the right hand is the Messiah. But, the, but David is here calling the Messiah my Lord. And so David says, how can he be the son of David if he calls the Messiah my Lord? And of course, this is Jesus' way of saying, guys, I'm not just the son of man. I'm not just the Messiah. And he has to be careful how he says this because he wants to gauge the timing of his own death according to his schedule. I am God. Well, they don't know what to do. Verse 45, if therefore David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. That's the same thing they tried to trip him up with in 2215, a word. But now nobody wants so much as to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him further. My point about the inspiration of the Bible is this. The theology of Psalm 110 hangs on the superscription. It hangs on the title. And there's much debate, even within Jewish circles, about whether the titles are inspired or not. But Jesus says, how therefore does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? So Jesus is attributing to the title of Psalm 110 
the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he hangs his whole theology on it. So that sets a high bar for our understanding of what many people, and I would own this term, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. The words of Scripture are inspired by the Spirit. God says what he wants to say in the way that he wants to say it in the pages of Scripture. So there's a little uh, kind of a theology lesson that comes with that. Now I want to come to the end. And I want to come to the end by just making sure that I've got all of my points. Yeah. In this passage, obviously, Jesus is rounding out his understanding of what lies at the core of the Bible's teaching with a reference to himself. So in one sense, Jesus is giving three commandments, three teachings. Love the Lord your God with all your minds, with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And recognize that the son of David is the son of God and Lord. On page three is an appendix. And, and as we come to conclude and we think about how to apply this passage, I want to suggest what in many ways ought to be obvious. And that is that Jesus is the ideal example of how to apply the double commandment. You use the, the, the author and the embodiment of the third commandment, as it were, the son of God, the son of David, and you look at his example. And I'm going to ask um, us, and here's where a little bit of a catch might come, and it might serve as a bit of a wake-up. Oh, no, my gosh, she's going to ask me to do something. I'm wondering if we could start with whoever wants along the back row over here. We'll choose the back. We're going to start with you, Roger. Okay, And then we'll go along to Karina, Shina, as many people as we get. And if you don't want to read it, just say pass. Uh, okay, so we're going to choose the seated people. And so, Roger, if you would stand up and read the first asterisk, and then Karina the second, Shina the third. And, of course, all of the people in the back row are going to be wondering which one they have to read and are going to practice it. But everybody else gets to listen and kind of enjoy. Okay. So here's the application. It's our Lord. Matthew, as the disciple described, goes to great lengths to show that Jesus not only teaches on the law, but also internalizes it and thereby fulfills it. In fact, when Jesus teaches on a topic, Matthew makes sure to emphasize that Jesus performs it as well. So these are examples, and we're going to hear them read, read out, if you don't mind, kind of uh, loudly and, um, and forthrightly, to see how Jesus walks the talk. And as we hear how Jesus walks the talk, hopefully we'll learn how to walk the talk ourselves. Roger? Lord, your teaching and your will are painfully clear. And we are drawn to what is the most important. We confess that we do not love you with our whole heart, as we already have done, and that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But as we continue to stand in the scribal school of Matthew, we pray that by your spirit, you might instill in us to look to Jesus as our example and to be inspired by him through the Holy Spirit to keep these commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.